Uh, we're continuing a series called Healthy Habits, and in this fall series, we're looking at eight healthy habits, spiritual disciplines, that if practiced regularly can become a kind of predictable pattern in our life for the purpose of kind of presenting ourselves to Jesus so that God can transform us. And there's, there's such a flurry of struggle in our world with us trying to fix ourselves and make ourselves better and all of that. And this, this, this is a different way. Uh, this is the way of presenting ourselves to the Lord so that he might transform us um, because you know what? We're not qualified for that job. <laughs> we don't have the skills to fix ourselves. If, if we did, we would have accomplished it long ago. So we do have a part, and that's what we're talking about in this series. Uh, today we're looking at the habit of resting, and we're looking at a couple of different scriptures, Psalm 95 first, and then a chunk from uh, Hebrews chapter four. So I uh, hear the word of the Lord first from Psalm 95. Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. For the Lord is the great God, the great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his, for he made it and his hands formed the dry land. Come, let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God and we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. Today, if only you would hear his voice. Do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did that day at Massa in the wilderness, where your ancestors tested me. They tried me, though they had seen what I did. For 40 years, I was angry with that generation. I said, they are a people whose hearts go astray and they have not known my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. And then this from Hebrews 4, the first 13 verses. Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. For we also have had the good news proclaimed to us just as they did, but the message they heard was of no value to them because they did not share the faith of those who obeyed. Now we who have believed enter that rest just as God has said. So I declared on oath in my anger they shall never enter my rest. And yet his works have been finished since the creation of the world. For somewhere he has spoken about the seventh day in these words, on the seventh day, God rested from all his works. And again, in the passage above, he says, they shall never enter my rest. Therefore, since it still remains for some to enter that rest, and since those who formerly had the good news proclaimed to them did not go in because of their disobedience, God again set a certain day, calling it today. This he did when a long time later he spoke through David, as in the passage already quoted, today if you Hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would have spoken, God would not have spoken later about another day. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works, just as God did from his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will perish by following their example of disobedience. For the word of God is alive and active, sharper 
than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Friends, indeed, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. People nowadays take time far more seriously than eternity. It's a quote from a Quaker educator, a college professor who specialized in spiritual disciplines. He lived from 1893 to 1941. I think he wrote this in the 1920s. People nowadays take time far more seriously than eternity. Uh, John Ortberg is a pastor that I enjoy. He's an author too. He's written a lot of books and he described a time in his life when he was feeling overloaded and too busy. Here's what he wrote. Not long after moving to Chicago, I called a wise friend to ask for some spiritual direction. I described the pace at which things tend to move in my current setting. I told him about the rhythms of our family life and about the present condition of my heart as best I could discern it. What did I need to do, I asked him, to be spiritually healthy? Long pause. You must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. He said at last. Another long pause. Okay, I've written that one down. I told him a little impatiently. That's a good one. Now, Now, what else is there? I had many things to do, and I was anxious to cram as many units of spiritual wisdom into the least amount of time possible. Another long pause. There is nothing else. He was the wisest spiritual mentor I have known. And while he doesn't know every detail about every grain of sin in my life, he knows quite a bit, and from an immense quiver of spiritual sagacity, he drew only one arrow. There is nothing else, he said. You must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. Did you know that hurry sickness is an actual thing? I mean, it's not not a formal physical or mental health diagnosis, but, but it's a thing. Here's one definition, hurry sickness, a continuous struggle and unremitting attempt to accomplish or achieve more and more things or participate in more and more events in less and less time. It leads people to feel an ever-present need to hurry through tasks and conversations and appointments. You always have your foot on the gas, you're never letting off or, or stepping on the brake, all for the stated purpose of making the most of every moment so that we'll have more time to enjoy more moments. And that's where a little deception creeps in. Hurry sickness is based on the illusion that hurrying will actually give us more time. Uh, And hurry sickness often masquerades under different names like multitasking or efficiency or good time management. Now, there's nothing wrong with good time management. I'm a fan, right? I mean, time is a, a resource that the Lord has entrusted to us and we need to steward that well. But that's not what's going on in hurry sickness. 
there's something much more basic and more problematic going on here. I don't know uh, all of your stories of how you came to faith in Jesus or whether you might still be exploring the claims of Christ, but in, in my search, uh, for me, one of the most compelling arguments for the truth of Christianity is the way that the Christian faith explains what we observe and experience going on in the world. Uh, C.S. Lewis put it much better than I ever could. He wrote this, I, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. Very compelling argument of the Christian faith. Christianity helps us see what's really happening in the world. And, and the deeper you drive, the better the hand and glove fit. Christianity helps us see what's really going on in hurry sickness. You know, the, the whole Bible is the story of Jesus. The story of Jesus starts in the book of Genesis and uh, where God created everything, including people. And, and then in Genesis 3, the scripture records the decision of human beings to depart the presence of God, to, to try to go it on their own, to live on their own, to provide for themselves, to, to functionally exist as, as if God isn't real, right? Genesis 4 then, the chapter right after this, records the consequences of leaving our relationship with God, of thinking we can go it on our own. One of the most telling signs of a broken relationship with God is this. When human beings break with God, they begin to undervalue other human beings. Says Genesis 4, to the point where we even entertain the idea of killing other human beings. It's the story of Cain and Abel, right? Two brothers, Cain killed his brother Abel. And there are terrible consequences for Cain after he killed his brother. Here, here's the text just following. The Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are under a curse and driven from the ground which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my, my punishment is more than I can bear. Today are, you are driving me from the land and I will be hidden from your presence. I will be a restless wanderer on the earth. I mean, there's all sorts of spiritual takeaways here, but one big takeaway is this. Sin and our separation from God causes people to experience spiritual restlessness and dissatisfaction. And if we understand our Christian faith to explain what's happening in the world, you don't have to look far to see this. I mean, just survey the landscape of the life of this world. It's everywhere. Restlessness and dissatisfaction and, and human beings acting out. You know, the behavioral equivalent of, of a toddler. <laughs> to, to grasp for some fix, some sense of satisfaction, something that might... You know, put a bomb on the, on the restlessness of, of our hearts. I mean, it's, it's everywhere. And, and hurry sickness is about human beings trying to fix that problem by their own striving and strength. Ultimately, that's what's going on spiritually. It's about trying to find rest and satisfaction, real rest and satisfaction through our doing and our experiences. 
I, I think it was last week I, fared, I shared that famous line from Carl Jung, you know, the, uh, one of my favorite quotes from him. Uh, the world will ask you who you are. If you don't know, it will tell you. You know, meaning, if we're not clear on our identity, we're living in a context, uh, a prevailing culture that will try to tell us who we are. It will try to declare our identity on our behalf, right? Uh, Carl Jung has another quote that's pretty good. He said this, hurry is not of the devil. Hurry is the devil. Now, of course, theologically, that's not true, right? That's biblically inaccurate. The devil is a created being. Um, But there's some spiritual truth behind what he said there, right? And the, the spiritual truth is this. There is a reality of spiritual opposition in our hurrying of which every Christian needs to be aware if they want to actually follow Jesus. And as beautiful as the world is and as we're called to you know, glorify God and enjoy him forever and enjoy all good created things, simultaneously, the world is an incredibly dangerous minefield of lies and half-truths. They're everywhere. I mean, just, just everywhere. And the great lie behind all of our hurrying is that we can build our identity through our activity. And it's just not true. And more than that, it's way harder than life needs to be because Jesus has shown us a completely different way. And that's what all the craziest craziness is about. All, all the scurrying around, ultimately at a spiritual level, is about us trying to fix ourselves, us trying to build an identity through, through our activity. Now, I'm not talking about the good work that God has given us. I mean, we have a wonderful theology of vocation. You know, God calls us to things. Uh, more than just like full-time ministry things, right? God calls us vocationally to join him in the world in his good creation, to be co-creators in whatever that calling happens to be. I'm not talking about that kind of work. I'm talking about the overwork. When you take the good thing and twist it to the point where we're trying to fix ourselves, right? That, that's this. I'm talking about the human striving to achieve our own identity. It's the Home Depot version of identity crafting, do-it-yourself, identity DIY. Just trying to fix it on our own. Strapping on the tool belt, buying the right tools. I'm going to get at this and I'm going to fix this thing. See, God, God created us not just to exist, but to join him in his work in the world. And that's a great thing. We're called to bear fruit, to work, to create, to produce an increase. Right? We're hardwired for work. And, and that's why when we're not contributing meaningfully or purposefully, we feel it spiritually. There's a, there's a created reality there. Right? But when work becomes a means to an end, the end of fixing ourselves so we don't need God, well, then the whole train is off the rails, right? We've crashed. Because the whole point of the gospel is that Jesus came to do the work that we couldn't. Jesus came to restore are a good relationship with God. More than that, he came to restore for us a perfect relationship with God, unhindered by our wrongdoing or shortcomings in its basic definition. Right? We, we sang about it earlier. I am who you say I am. I am I'm a child of God. Who the sun sets free, free indeed, I'm a child of God. See, Jesus said this, come to me all you who are weary and burdened and I will give you rest, rest, Rest from what? Well, well, rest 
from the work of trying to fix ourselves. <laughs> the, the work of, of, of seeking out a level of satisfaction that seems to match the depth of this life that we're experiencing. Right? The work of trying to remedy the relentless restlessness within because we know it's there. Augustine put it this way, our hearts will be restless until they find their rest in you, O God. So very true. And Jesus is in the business of healing restless wanderers. And and that's all of us. (laughs) None of us are any worse than anybody else. That's all of us. And this is the basic message of the gospel. Jesus came to earth to do for us what we could not do for ourselves so that we can live in God's permanent rest. See, we live in a a covenantal relationship with God, says the Bible. And in the old covenant, God said, hey, I'll keep my end of the deal and, and you need to keep your end of the deal. But he said that with a little foreshadowing that he would help us keep our end of the deal. And that's a good thing because we couldn't keep our end of the deal. We don't have it in us. So God created a new deal, a new covenant. And in the new covenant, the new deal, God came to earth in the person of Jesus to take our place, to become our substitute, and to keep our end of the relational deal with God on our behalf. That's what the gospel is all about. It's not religion. It's a gift from God to us. That's what communion is all about. Every time we celebrate communion, right, it's about... Jesus taking our, our place. This is, when we take the bread, right? This is my body given for you. And the cup, this is my blood shed for you. All of that in our place. Him becoming our, our substitute. So the new deal, as you can see, is a really good deal. Because God keeps his end of the relational bargain and in Jesus he sneaks around to our side and keeps our end of the relational bargain on our behalf. So God completely fulfills both ends of our relational covenant so that we can live with and before God now and forever completely free, unhindered, living as, really living as a child of God, not just a religious idea that you have percolating in the back of your head somewhere, but living moment by moment as the child of God we are. That's the power of the gospel. And it's the experience God wants every human being everywhere to have. To be set free and come back into full relationship with God through what Christ has done for us. And, and really, the only thing, the only thing we have to do to enter this new deal is to acknowledge our need and ask for help. It's really that simple. I mean, you have to acknowledge your need because if you don't know you have a need, you won't ask for help, right? You you might be a person who has just mad skills with tools, able to build whatever you envision, able to fix whatever's broken. You might be a person who has mad relational skills, able to navigate any difficult, sticky situation and see it to a kind of a redemptive end, you know, to, to, to navigate this to where everybody's happy and healthy again. You might have mad skills, but I guarantee you this, when it comes to fixing yourself spiritually, you are a complete and utter failure. Because every single one of us is a complete and utter failure 
when it comes to fixing ourselves, that we can't do it. Again, we're back to we're not qualified for that job. It's a God-sized job. And guess what? We're not God. You have to acknowledge the, the brokenness in you. The, and it can't just be like, well, yeah, I kind of need a little help. It's got to be like, I've got nothing. I, I come to you, God, with nothing. And then ask for help. This is really super unsophisticated. I mean, you don't have to say the right words. There's no scripted prayer. I mean, God looks at our heart, right? This is simply a cry for help to the God who is. God, I need your help. Please help me. Uh, this was my experience. I didn't grow up in the church. I was a senior in college when I prayed this prayer. My, mine, mine was like this. God, for the first time in my life, I think you're real. And wow, I need help. And that was it. And God honors those prayers. That this is how we enter God's rest the initial time. Right? It's how a person turns to Jesus and places their trust in him. And by the way, if you're kind of new to this thing, that's all that Christians mean when they throw around phrases like accepting Christ or giving your heart to Jesus. In my mind, that's all very confusing language if you have no background and knowledge of what Jesus has done. Uh, Initial faith is a transfer of trust from whatever you've been trusting to fix yourself to what Jesus has done for you. It's just that. It's, it's, it's the giving up, finally and fully giving up on the project of trying to fix yourself. This isn't just the loosening the tool belt. This is the taking off the tool belt and throwing it away. I cannot do it. And see, there's a part of the passage that we read today from Hebrews that has to do with this initial transfer of trust. Look at this again. It was verses 6 and 7. Therefore, since it still remains for some to enter that rest the rest of a trusting relationship with God by God's grace and through faith in Jesus. Since that still remains for some to enter that. And since those who formerly had the good news proclaimed to them did not go in because of their disobedience, God again set a certain day, calling it today. Like now. This he did when a long time later he spoke through David as in the passage already quoted. Today, In this moment, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Uh, See, entering entering God's rest means giving up on the DIY spiritual fix-it project. Uh, Laying down our striving to build our own identity through our own activity and coming to God empty-handed and saying, I I can't, I've got nothing, I can't do it, I need your help. And today is the day. There's great wisdom in the scripture there. Because if we think tomorrow is the day, we'll take that posture perpetually. Tomorrow's the day. Well, tomorrow's the day. No, today's the day. Today's the day to wrestle with the realities of the life, of this life we're experiencing, of the universe in which we live. I mean, come on, what's really going on here? Today's the day to wrestle with that. 
And gladly, we're not left without light because the Christian faith stands apart from every other spiritual belief because the, the, the linchpin of our faith is a claim that is historical in nature, not just a spiritual idea or a philosophy. And that historic claim is that we live in a world where a resurrection has happened. That, that a historical event guides us to what is actually going on in the world right now and what's actually going on with our lives. The fundamental difference. So if you've never entered God's rest in that way, meaning, you know, taking off the spiritual tool belt or whatever we're we're doing to try to fix ourselves and just coming to God empty-handed and asking for help. Do that today. Today. There's another part of the passage from Hebrews that is aimed at people who've already done that at some point in their life but struggle to keep on living in God's rest. Look at this. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works. That are striving, right? Striving to, because it creeps back in so easily, just as God did from his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will perish by following their example of disobedience. The, the point here is that uh, even as God's people, people who trust Jesus, we can live our daily lives apart from God and outside of God's rest, the experience of that. Now, our relationship with God is set firm forever by God's declaration you know, by grace, uh, by God's grace and through faith in Jesus, we've been declared to be children of God. But to live there, to occupy the territory that has been given to us, that there's some stuff for us to do. So what does it mean for us as Christians to, to enter, to re-enter God's rest? I mean, Sabbath rest for the believing person is resting in what Jesus has done for us. Remember his last words on the cross, it is Almost finished? <laughs> it is finished. It, it's done. You know, on the cross, Jesus finished the work of restoring our relationship with God. So, you don't have to. Sabbath rest for a Christian is, is not just a nap or not doing the work you normally do during the week. Yeah, it involves physical rest, and if you dive into the work you do normally, normally during the week, spiritually it can pull you back into that striving, identity-building thing, so it probably would be good to like, not do that. But much more importantly, the rest that we need is a rest that helps us live back into the gospel, to rest back into the gospel. Right? We, we need to leave those things, that, that, those illusions that, that populate our minds. Like we don't need to be important. We don't need to prove our worth to God or, or to anybody else. We don't need to be needed. There's nobody to impress. We don't have to keep holding up the illusions that we're good enough or smart enough or pretty enough or, or, or whatever. We can let go of all of that and live completely free in Christ. I, I love this summary from... Uh, author Justin Whitmore Early, uh, his book titled The Common Rule. You should get this book. It's really good. He wrote this. If you've lived, like, uh, if you've lived your life believing that you can earn your worth, that you can earn your salvation by outweighing the bad with the good, that you can justify your place in this, 
world through the money you earn or status you achieve. Come and rest. Come Sabbath with Jesus. Here there is peace that no amount of effort can buy. He came to you first. A nod to great scripture. While we were still in our sin, Christ died for us. The whole message of the gospel is that when we were dirty and unpresentable and at our worst, it was at that very moment that God came to us in Jesus and said, I love you and I want you back. There is no greater love. We need to rest into the truth of the gospel. So what to do to rest? I, I like this pattern. I didn't make a slide for this, but I had a friend who said, I do four things to rest, different seasons. Devote daily, Sabbath weekly, retreat monthly, and abandon annually. And I, I, love, I love that. Uh, don't get it right all the time. But there's a tremendous truth to devote daily that helps us enter and live in God's rest in the daily, right? setting our hearts right for the day. Sabbath weekly, that's the 24-hour period of time or we, we set aside our striving. So it might involve a nap and not doing the work that we normally do, but it, it's about resting into the truths of the gospel again. That's what that Sabbath rest is about. Monthly retreat, this is just a separated time away. And then abandon annually, my friend def- defines as at least a two-week vacation. <laughs> like really unplug. The, the rhythms of rest. So, so you've you got you to figure out what works for you. But he, here's the challenge for... Uh, this week, once a week for a 24-hour period, behave as if all your work is done. Not just your to-do list, right? However you track that, sticky notes or to-doist. I'm a to-doist guy. However you keep track of those things. Um, Not just that those lists are done, but all of your spiritual work. All of the getting my spiritual life with God right or the things I want to work on to do that a little better. All of that, done. Because it is finished. Just resting with God in the person you are right now, the person whom God loves and the person for whom Jesus died. Resting in that person. Some physical rest, yes, but maybe not always because sometimes, I mean, chopping wood might be physical rest to you. Great. Uh, Or spiritual rest to you. You should do that then. Sometimes it's sleeping in or a long lunch or corporate worship or conversation with friends. And, And there are different seasons of life. If you have young kids, this thing will look different for you, but it can be done. Bring some intentionality to it. You can figure out some restful things to do as a family. And you have to sort out what's actually restful for, for you, right? There are differences among us as to how we rest. Introverts need some alone time rest. Extroverts need some together time rest, right? The spiritual habit of resting involves setting aside time not just to veg out, but to do worshipful and relationally engaging activities. It's a Sabbath. So your mission for this week, should you choose to accept it, plan a 24-hour I said day, I'm going to say period, 24-hour period of rest and try it. 
Not just not doing your work from the normal week, but resting from any spiritual striving to make yourself good enough or presentable enough or whatever to God. A 24-hour period to rest in the truth of the gospel that God loves you now and forever. And he came to you just the way you are, just as you are. This is one of the most countercultural habits we could practice, I think, but a very important rhythm. A rhythm that reminds us that all of the spiritual work is already done. Everything needed for us to live in an unhindered relationship with God is accomplished. We can never do any of that on our own, but God has done, done it for us in Jesus. And for that, we are so deeply thankful. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Pray with me, would you? God, thank you so much for your deep, deep goodness. I thank you that you've invited us to come to you when we're feeling weary and burdened and you've promised to give us rest from all of that striving and, and working and trying. God, help us. If, if there be any kind of barriers in our life, any, any kind of blockades, please help us. Tear those things down from in front of us. Help us get around them, however you want to do that. But God, help us to, to turn to you, to look to you, Lord Jesus, and enable us to trust you. Help faith grow in us. If, the, if that's a hard thing for us, if we're at the front end of a walk of faith, God, water and tend that little seed and, and make faith grow in us. Help us to trust you, God, to rely upon you, to come to you empty-handed, um, knowing that you are good by what you've done for us in the person of Jesus on the cross and hanging on to the historic reality that you came in person for real, that you lived an amazing life and you died a sacrificial death all on our behalf and that you rose from the dead and are alive this very instant of time and so deeply interested in being in our lives. By your spirit, help us embrace all of that, God. We love you and we worship you, O Lord. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.